Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. It's a song of praise. It's a song of gratitude, but it's also a song about perspective. I got to have a short visit yesterday with a ministry friend who was hospitalized for two months and intubated twice when he got COVID two years ago. I know that's a lot of twos in one sentence. It's amazing that he survived that ordeal. But you'd better believe that when my friend sings, it's your breath in our lungs, that there's a different perspective now, right? There's a different perspective that comes with that. And perspective is valuable because perspective, when you have a good perspective, you're seeing things for how they really, truly are. When you recognize just how much you depend on God for your breath, and when you get a perspective about your fragility, and then you consider how faithful God has been about providing the millions of breaths that you have already taken, then you get a perspective about how precious you must be in the eyes of of the creator. And so I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that you're here and that we're gaining perspective and paying attention to God together. You know, I couldn't help but laugh this week at a news story that I saw about an increasingly famous French bulldog named Ralphie. Maybe some of you saw this on the news. Ralphie lives in the city of Niagara Falls, New York at the SPCA animal shelter again. And Ralphie is making a name for himself for being almost impossible to adopt, almost impossible to live with. The SPCA there in Niagara has been using their social media accounts to try to seek far and wide, to look far and wide to find a suitable owner for Ralphie, but they're not trying to sugarcoat his temperament. They've been posting videos of demonstrations of his temperament. They've been posting descriptions of his behavior. And some of the things that they have said about Ralphie are, we don't actually have too many nice things to say about Ralphie. Now, this is the SPCA, right? They have something nice to say about every animal. But they said, we don't actually have too many nice things to say about Ralphie. He is 100% full jerk. (laughs) And we've been using humor on our social media accounts to help make his behaviors more palatable for public consumption, but his behaviors are no joke. And the deal is, French Bulldogs, these are, this is a breed that's in high demand. And so when people walk into the SPCA and they think that they are there to adopt a puppy, there are a lot of potential adopters who are drawn to Ralphie from the moment that they see him. They think immediately, that's probably the one for us. And the problem is that Ralphie has a mean and destructive side that has so far rendered him unmanageable by human companions. In fact, he's been adopted and returned to the shelter three times in the last month. 
with each adopter deciding after just a couple of days that adopting Ralphie is not going to work for our family. Sometimes, you know, you find yourself in one of those situations where it's just more than you bargained for. Sometimes you find yourself in a predicament where you're in over your head, more than you were expecting. And sometimes, sometimes you might even feel that way about your Christian faith. Sometimes you might even feel that way about this connection with the divine. And, and you might know, if you've been around Heritage much, you might know that since the beginning of the year, we've been working our way through a series of messages here about a really prominent part of one of Jesus' most famous teachings. It's a little section of a sermon that's called the Beatitudes. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, the very first book in the New Testament portion of your Bible. And these Beatitudes, really all they are is just a series of blessing statements. They always start with, blessed are those blessing statements where Jesus is explaining or revealing the nature of how blessing works in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus keeps pronouncing these blessings in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10. He keeps pronouncing these blessings on various groups of people, and we've covered a different one each week. But he's choosing groups of people that most people don't think of as blessed. He blessed groups like the poor in spirit, the merciful. Honestly, if those people are blessed, it almost has to be because of some kind of divine intervention, right? Because the world doesn't bless people like that. And that's exactly Jesus's point, that there has been a divine intervention. The kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the message that Jesus is preaching throughout the book of Matthew. And when the kingdom of heaven has come near... What Jesus is telling us is that people who were discouraged suddenly have a reason to be encouraged. When God's kingdom comes to earth, there is good news for people who are accustomed to bad news. Now remember, when Jesus shares this message, he's speaking to a crowd of people who had come to hear him teach and to experience his healing ministry. All right, What this almost positively means is that everybody in the crowd either doesn't have a job or they're doing without pay for today so that they can be here, all right? And they don't live in a very highbrow society. And many of them are either injured or ill themselves or they've brought an injured or ill loved one with them. Everybody in the crowd who's listening to Jesus is somebody who knows what suffering feels like. They know what struggle feels like, not just in their distant past, but like this morning, it was real for them. So it's these people, this big crowd of people and Jesus's newly commissioned disciples. These men that he has recently invited to be his followers and they're brand new to this whole thing. And the blessing statement, the last one that we're covering, the last one in the Beatitudes that we're covering today, chapter five, verse 10, it just sounds like this. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We've gotten in the habit of reading these twice because they're so short. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think it's a hard life lesson that everybody learns at some point or another that you can get mistreated 
for doing the right thing, right? You can do the right thing and the response to that can be really ugly. I found a 30-year-old story about a Bosnian war episode that happened. I mean, this is in the early 90s in Eastern Europe. And it's about this family of Bosnian Serbs, okay? So this is the Protestant Christian side of the war that was going on over there. And their son had been taken away, detained and taken away and never returned by Muslim forces that they were at war with. And they assumed that their son was dead. And after five months, about five months after their son had been taken away, their son's daughter was born. Brand new mom and grandparents with a baby in the middle of a war zone, tough situation. And because of the shelling and because of the severe food shortages, they were unable to secure enough food for themselves. But more importantly, they were unable to secure milk for the baby. All they had in their most dire moments, all they had available to feed the baby was tea. And that wasn't cutting it. And the baby was not thriving. And the baby wasn't growing. And they were panicked and they didn't know what they were going to do. And they're huddled in their house and they're trying to hide from the, the uh, patrolling police officers who are searching for any other Serbs who are in that part of the neighborhood. And one night they hear footsteps on their front porch and they look through the window, peek through the window, and they see one of their Muslim neighbors, a man named Fadil. And Fadil happened to own a cow. And Fadil, we're, we're having a cow day. I'm talking about cows a lot at Heritage today. Fadil brought with him a half liter of milk for the baby. Even though the baby was Serbian, and he was Muslim. And they were shocked by Fadil's gesture. They were shocked by his generosity, but Fadil wasn't through. In fact, Fadil began, began to come by every day, always delivering a half liter of milk for the baby. And who's counting? But Fadil came for 442 days in a row. 442 days that Fadil brought milk every day. You can read this story if you look up the archive in the New York Times. 442 days until the baby and her mother finally had a chance to travel safely across the border into a safer place to be. But what makes this story even more inspiring to me is that Fadil brought the milk every day in the face of harsh accusations from his own people of being a traitor. The New York Times reports that he refused to receive any money for the milk. He just kept showing up to take care of that little girl. And other families on the street got in the habit. They began to insult Fadil every day. And they told him, he should give his milk to the Muslims and let the Serbian children die. And Fadil, with his big, heavy work boots, just kept marching right toward that Serbian home, carrying that bottle of milk, 442 days in a row. 
Persecuted because of righteousness, Jesus says. There's a conflict between the values of Jesus and the values of our world. It's always there, but in the midst of a war zone, it becomes painfully apparent. The values of the world will say things like, you should let your enemy's children die of salvation, uh, of, excuse me, starvation. The values of the world say, you should let your enemy's children die of starvation. While the values of Jesus say, you love your neighbor like your very own self. And sometimes, sometimes when you try to love your neighbor as yourself, sometimes your other neighbors will turn on you. But Jesus says you're blessed. You're blessed when that happens. You're blessed when they turn on you because when you're persecuted for doing what's right, that's how you know that you're on the right track. When you're persecuted for doing what's right, when you're doing something that's so right that the wrong people start hating you for it, he says, that's how you know. You can tell you're on the right track toward inheriting the kingdom of heaven. And if Jesus had simply concluded the sermon, if he had offered an intermission at that moment and concluded the Beatitudes with that verse, then it would feel like a tidy bookend. It would feel as if a neat little bow had been wrapped around the entire passage that we've been studying all these nine weeks, eight weeks. And it would feel like, well, that, yeah, I mean, it all gels together. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. All of that. But in the next couple of verses, Jesus does something, something else unexpected. Most scholars would agree that the Beatitudes end at the end of verse 10, the verse that we just read together. And if you were looking along in, the, in your own printed Bible or maybe even on the Bible on your phone, you may notice that the verses up, into, up through verse 10 are written in lyric form. They're written with indentation as if part of a song or a poem. And then verse 11 starts to be paragraph form, teaching. Most scholars agree the Beatitudes actually end at the end of verse 10. And all of those statements we've been covering up to this point were spoken in the third person. They used language like, blessed are those, like those people out there. Blessed are them. And then in verse 11, Jesus switches voice. In verse 11, Jesus uses a second, per, a second person voice. This is when the introduction to the sermon has come to an end and the meat of the sermon is getting started. And I suspect that among all of the crowd, all of those people with their infirmities and their illnesses and their problems, I suspect that in this moment, Jesus made eye contact with his disciples. The people who he had called to be his followers, not, the, not just the ones who had come out from the city to be able to see him for a day or to experience a healing to be awed by a teaching. He, I, I think he looks at the people who have said, we're with you. And he says to them, blessed are you. Not blessed are those anymore. Okay, we're talking about second person voice. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of 
Now, he's not just saying you're blessed anytime somebody's mean to you. But he's being specific. Blessed are you when people are mean to you, when treat, people mistreat you on my account because of your association with Jesus. Blessed are you when, as a disciple, someone looks at your allegiances, looks at your behavior, looks at your life decisions, looks at your commitments, and says, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. Blessed are you, Jesus says. And even as we read it, we can tell this is different than the blessings that came before. The blessings, this, this blessing sounds sort of ominous. Sounds disconcerting. It sounds like a prediction. Sounds like a warning. And if you spent any time in the rest of the gospel writings, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at the beginning of your New Testament, or if you've read the book of Acts, the story of the earliest years of the church, you know there are some insults and some lies and some persecution that are heading right toward the disciples, right? They're about to experience a lot of what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5, but the disciples had not read the Gospels. The disciples had not read the book of Acts. They didn't know how the story ends. The first disciples had only recently been invited to follow. I'm not sure about the timeline, but it wouldn't surprise me a bit if Peter and Andrew's clothes still smelled like fish. They had another job a couple of days ago. They're new, like probationary period, you know, first 90 days kind of thing. They're not even sure where this is going to go, where this is going to head, what it's going to mean for them. All of this is brand new. And here's Jesus all but promising that the road ahead is going to be painful. It makes you wonder if they had any idea what they were signing up for. You got to wonder about Jesus's salesmanship, right? I mean, can you imagine you go to the car dealership and you take a car for, the te for a test drive and the, the, the guy, the, the salesperson that's riding along says, every third time you ride in this thing, you're going to have to have this checked and you're going to have to go to the chiropractor. You know, like it's that bad a car. Can you imagine? This is essentially what Jesus is doing. This is what Jesus is, how he's pitching out this discipleship life. He's saying this is going to be difficult this is going to be challenging. You know, about 27 years ago, there was a nuclear power plant in Connecticut called the Millstone Nuclear Power Plant. What a name, if you have a biblical awareness. I think that's interesting. But at Millstone, they had a problem. The operators of the plant, the supervisors, the management, they were intentionally ignoring proper safety protocols when it came to handling used nuclear material. The idea was that after a certain amount of months, you're supposed to take all of these used up, expended nuclear rods, uranium rods, and safely handle them and put them in a cooling tank after a certain amount of time and only a certain amount of them at the same time or else it's going to start boiling that water and creating toxic steam. Okay, this is a big problem. And the, the management at this plant is ignoring the proper safety protocols and they're putting too many fuel rods into the cooling ponds at one time, and they're running a real risk of causing the water to boil and release this radioactive steam into the environment. And the supervisors at the plant knew exactly what they were doing. They knew that they were breaking the law, but it saved so much money to hurry the process along so that the reactor didn't have to be down any longer than it was. And so they were just turning a blind eye to the problems. But there was this conscientious 
senior engineer named George Galatis, who was very concerned. He knew that the longer these risky operations were allowed to continue, the more danger it posed to human life inside and outside of the plant. And so he tried for months to convince his supervisors to put an end to these dangerous practices, but they refused. And so George, this senior nuclear engineer, who was also a Christian, began to spend time on his lunch breaks praying about what he should do. He was praying, asking God for guidance. And a little while later, after a couple of weeks, he felt convicted that it was his obligation to report the plant's problems to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Unfortunately, the commission was not able to provide George any whistleblower protections at all. And so everybody at work knew what George had done. George went back to work. And as he would be in meetings, he would find that people were ostracizing him. He feared for his safety every day when he went to work, having to face people who were angry at him for filing the reports he had filed, potentially bringing them under you know, the possibility of criminal charges, but also threatening their jobs. And he had confrontations with some co-workers. He was shunned by other co-workers. He faced intimidation and harassment for 18 months before he was finally able to leave that job. Here was George Galatis trying to do the right thing, trying to protect everybody, trying to listen to what God had instructed him to do. He's calling for the enforcement of crucial nuclear safety protocols, and he's likely saving and prolonging lives by standing up for what's right, but his principled stand for doing what was right made him a target. It made people hate him. His co-workers treated him like a traitor when he did what he believed God was calling him to do. And that's the kind of treatment that Jesus' earliest disciples would go on to experience. When they didn't walk in lockstep with the Pharisees and their legalism, Jesus' followers were accused of blaspheming and turning their back on the faith of their people and their childhood when they preached the name of Jesus with foreign languages by the power of the Holy Spirit, they were accused of just being sloppy drunks. The first generations of Jesus' disciples were arrested and imprisoned more times than we can count. They were beaten, they were bruised, and ultimately many of them were killed because of their allegiance to Jesus. They were not violent. They were not disrespectful. They lived in peace as they shared their faith. But there is a conflict between the values of the kingdom of heaven and the values of the kingdom of this world. There's a conflict between those values. And if you live your life the way Jesus' first disciples lived their lives, you will be peaceful. You will be respectful. You won't be forceful. You won't be demanding. You'll be as gentle as a lamb and you'll still be misunderstood and you'll still be maligned. It makes me think about those poor souls who tried to adopt Ralphie the French Bulldog. Because, you know, those naive adopters probably thought to themselves, all Ralphie needs is a little TLC. All we got to do is just provide a loving home, a warm bed. We'll take good care of him. Let him know he's loved. We'll have him re rehabilitated in a hurry. And then they got him home, and that's not how things worked out. They got him home, and no matter how sweetly they treated him, no matter how, gentle, no matter how gentle they were, no matter how much they offered to rub his belly, he was still Ralphie, 
angry and vicious, just like before. And Jesus knows, Jesus knows ahead of time that his disciples are going to experience some of that, no matter how peaceful and gentle they are. Jesus knows that the conflict between his values and the world's values, it's severe. It's a big open gap. It's a chasm. Jesus knows that the road ahead is not going to be easy, but he offers this invitation and this encouragement in verse 12. He says, rejoice and be glad. This is one another, another one of those moments where everybody looks around and says, really? Rejoice and be glad, he says, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And for a student of the Old Testament, like so many of these disciples would have been, this brought to mind images and stories of prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel who kept on speaking God's truth to a bunch of people who didn't want to hear it and they were gentle about it and they weren't forceful and they didn't demand their own way. They just kept saying it. They didn't give up because they had had a real encounter with the Lord. Isaiah had had a real encounter with the Lord. You can read about it in Isaiah chapter 6. Ezekiel had had a real encounter with the Lord. He'd had visions of what's really going on in the heavenly realms and the cosmic world. Jeremiah had had a real encounter with the Lord, and so they couldn't, they couldn't quit talking about this. And this is what Jesus is after, a devotion that doesn't give up in the face of persecution. Over the next few verses in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus compares his, his followers to salt and light, two different catalysts that make a noticeable impact on their environment. And that's exactly why Jesus brings this up, because he's calling for his followers' righteous living to be a catalyst. Jesus' followers' righteous living ought to make a difference. And your decision to live a righteous life your decision to live a righteous life won't always make sense to the world and the people and the neighbors and the friends around you. In fact, at times, your decision to live a righteous life may be disappointing and it may be offensive to other people, like the guy who was taking milk to his Serbian neighbors. But your decision to live for Jesus, it's going to call you to love people that the people in your community want you to hate. Your decision to live for Jesus will challenge you to include those who are being excluded by everybody else. Your decision to live for Jesus will result in blessing people who appear to deserve a curse. And there will be times when people who aren't living for Jesus will not understand and will not appreciate what you're doing, and it may cost you. But here's Jesus saying, when that happens, when that happens, you're blessed. When that happens, don't give up. Don't change your mind. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't hide your light because your resilience when you're mistreated is going to allow you to experience something of God you haven't experienced before. Your, your resilience when you are abused, when you are persecuted because of your decision to be a follower of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is that specific. When you're persecuted because of righteousness. 
When you are persecuted because of your decision to be a follower of Jesus, you are going to be allowed to experience God's provision in a way that you haven't felt it before. And your reaction in the face of persecution is going to lead to changed hearts around you. Your response, your decision not to give up, is going to lead to changed hearts around you. You know, if you were to just turn a couple of pages, two pages in my Bible... Matthew chapter 8. After the Sermon on the Mount is finished in Matthew chapter 7, it's the very next chapter of Matthew that Jesus and all of his disciples find themselves in a boat crossing a large lake and suddenly a a big storm rolls in. And you got to know, half of the disciples that Jesus called were people that grew up on the water. I mean, they were commercial fishermen, but by by, you know, as a factor of that, they were experienced sailors. They knew what they were doing. And they are terrified in this storm. The wind is howling, the waves are crashing, and the disciples, these lifelong sailors, they are panicked. And the Bible tells us, Matthew tells us, that Jesus was sleeping in the boat. And the disciples are thinking to themselves, can you believe this guy sleeping when all of us are about to drown? And there he is up in the bow of the boat, I don't know if you've spent much time on a boat, and I don't know what these boats look like, but the bow of the boat is where the waves come over the front. I mean, I can't imagine he's totally dry. But it says he was sleeping peacefully, and the storm is raging all around him. And when the disciples finally decide we better wake him up, he's not panicked. He's not anxious. They're anxious, and he's unafraid. And you know why? It's because he's got a different perspective, right? It's because when he feels like life is just throwing everything it can at him, when he's feeling the bumps and the bruises, when he's feeling the crash of everything coming down around him, when he is feeling like this mission that he has been called to might be more than he can handle, Jesus has a different perspective. And Matthew tells us that Jesus got up from the place where he was sleeping and he spoke to the wind and the waves and everything became calm again. And now the disciples are asking the same question with a completely different tone. Can you believe this guy? Can you believe this guy? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Can you believe this guy? That's an important question. That is the question that we've been wrestling with together these eight weeks. Because throughout this series, throughout the study of all of these beatitude blessing statements, we have heard Jesus make some particular claims about what the good life looks like. We've heard Jesus make some particular claims about what a human life well-lived looks like. And everything Jesus said on the list, everything as we went through all of this was counterintuitive. He is inviting humans to live lives that are marked and defined by justice, mercy, humility, hope, purity, righteousness, and peace. And despite your inclinations, and despite your intuitions... And despite your instincts, Jesus is saying, that's the way. That's the direction. That's the path to the good life. A life that's marked by all of those characteristics. 
And he's not saying that you have to travel this path on your own. He's not saying it's up to you to figure all of this out. In fact, quite the contrary, Jesus wants to help you. Jesus knows exactly how incapable, incompetent we are to travel that path on our own, but we do have to choose the path. We do have to choose which path we believe is going to lead to the life that we want, the life that we need, the life that we were created to live. We have to decide which path we're walking. And the decision is, am I walking this path that follows my own instincts and puts me first, but I have to navigate this on my own. I got to fight for all everything that's mine. Or do I walk this path that counterintuitively, it doesn't feel like anything that's going to lead to satisfaction or joy, but Jesus says that's where it is and he'll help me. This is the decision. And the question that only you can decide is, can you believe this guy? Some of you won't. Not yet. But if today's the day, if today's the day that you think, I'm not sure I can do that anymore. I'm not sure I can try that strategy anymore. It's miserable. It's painful and it's lonely. Maybe I should try it his way. If today's the day, then we want to walk that path together and we want to walk it with you. And so if you've decided that today's the day that you start to believe this guy Let's do that in community.